Good morning. Keep your Bibles open to 1 Samuel 8. I don't know you. My name's Godwin. I'm the lead pastor here at Faith Church, and it's my privilege to uh, look at this passage and try to explain it and apply it to our lives as a church. And uh, what an interesting story this is. You know, um, one of the most frustrating and yet attractive things about a story or a good story is when the hero moves from growing and making progress to then suddenly kind of declining out of the blue, okay? So you, you, you see the protagonist and you're rooting for the protagonist, making a breakthrough, they're growing up, you're excited, but then the idiot character makes a dumb decision yet again. If you've watched recently the new uh, Top Gun movie, well, remember the old one in the mid-80s, you will remember that, at least this is my experience, almost all the way through the movie, I was saying out loud sometimes, like, you gotta be kidding, Maverick. Like, get it together. So you see him make silly decision after silly decision. Well, this happens in the biblical narrative too. From the very beginning, consider Adam and Eve. As you read those first two chapters, you're meant to be drawn into something incredible that God is doing. He's creating this vast world and Moses' meticulous rendering of God's masterful creation is kind of topped by his, his uh, repe repeating emphasis of this was all done by God speaking, right? So it's just a beautiful, beautiful thing. And the story keeps getting better in chapter two. Uh, we see kind of this zoomed in account, almost a personal account of what creation was like for Adam and Eve. And as the reader of the story, we come to notice they had it all, right? I mean, a lush garden and provision and freedom, and God was walking with them. There was very little tension in the story at that time. There's a whole lot of hope and beauty and potential, right? Well, then you flip the page one more chapter, and everything good comes undone, just like that as Adam and Eve fall into sin. Come on, Adam. Come on, Eve, right? Get it together. That's what we see in our story, 1 Samuel chapter 8 as well. Here's another iteration of the Adamic failure to obey God and walk with him. Because Israel had it all too, right? God's proven himself to be a worthy warrior king for them. Samuel's their prophet. The promised land's restored to them. They had everything they needed. They had everything they wanted. And just like Genesis chapter two, we, the reader, want the story to kind of coast along this trajectory, right? Don't, don't mess this up, guys. But now, as was just read, they want a king like the nations. They already had a king. They had God. And they had Samuel, and they had proven themselves for decades, right? Come on, Israel, <laughs> get it together. Well, lest we put ourselves above the fickle and sinful nation of Israel, um, we're kind of just like them, right? Uh, might people who read our stories say the same thing? If someone were to read the, the story of my life or your life, you think they'd have moments where they'd say something similar? Come on, Godwin. Get it together. Get back on track. Wake up. Don't do that again. Well, in our story, Israel is being Israel. And they provide for us a case study of how our desires 
can be a little warped sometimes. They're not always righteous. They're not always helpful. And we also learn something about a faithful God as he interacts with this nation. Here's the main point. You'll see it on your note sheet. Uh, Beware the desires of your heart. The Lord may just give them to you. Beware the desires of your heart. The Lord may just give them to you. Don't follow your hearts, friends. And we're going to tackle this story in two sections. And I want us to take a step back before we jump into the first point here. This is the second kind of narrative arc. The first narrative arc was chapters one through seven. We saw Hannah and her barrenness, and that being a picture of uh, spiritual barrenness in Israel. And then God was bringing life not only to Hannah, but bringing life back to Israel through the ministry of Samuel as he comes and he, as he becomes the prophet. And we saw that little episode, chapters four through seven of the ark being uh, stolen and the people of God not relying on God and relying on this kind of good luck charm, right? And the ark was stolen, but through a, a number of events, the ark is brought back. This is last week. The people of God finally repent, and they return to the Lord, and they worship him alone. And it's a great ending to that first narrative arc. Well, we're about to start the second narrative arc, chapters 8 through 15. And this whole narrative arc is about the rise and the fall of Saul. The rise and the fall of Saul. And it starts with our chapter today. So our first point, what we see is a familiar crisis and a strange solution, verses 1 through 9. So chapter 8 takes us forward apparently many years because Samuel, as you'll notice, he's old. And as Samuel gets older, the security of Israel uh, that they enjoyed, the peace that they enjoyed, came under threat. Why do I say that? Well, it wasn't only that he grew older. It was that he made a choice to give his sons leadership, right? He invites his boys to help him. And I guess that's a possible solution. It's a bold experiment for sure. But doesn't this sound a little familiar? Now, wasn't it Eli's two older sons who shared in Eli's work as well, priestly work? And wasn't it Eli's sons whose character was worthless? They were not good guys? Well, check out the character of Samuel's sons, verse 3. However, his sons did not walk in his ways. They turned toward dishonest prophet, took bribes, and perverted justice. So they're not any better. So friends, the story of Eli is being repeated. Here we have a familiar crisis. Eli's sons took from God's people instead of giving to God's people. And the same with Samuel's sons. They're both doing the same things. They were users, not servers. They were takers, not givers. And so the writer of Samuel says, his sons did not walk in his ways. What a sad sentence, isn't that? We all have dreams for our children or our grandchildren to walk in our ways as far as we're walking with Christ. And the rest of the story for many of us has been good. Some of the story for us, stories for us have been difficult as we think about our prodigal children. I think of a friend of mine who lives here in the area and he has four adult boys, two of whom are pastors, and they're serving the church faithfully. Another is uh, married and has children and is invested in the local church. And the fourth son is in jail. And you think, think about that situation, like four boys growing up in the same house that was proclaiming Christ and, and living you know, as best as they could, and they were uh, sharing the Bible and so forth. And yet, what happened, right? One of those sons did not walk in their parents' ways. It's hard, it's sad, right? And so we pray and we wait and we hope for the Lord to save our prodigal children, don't we? And so Israel's security that they so enjoyed for years was now in significant jeopardy because of these boys. And so the elders, they come to Samuel, notice verse four, 
And they basically explain their concerns. They're like, hey, you're old. Your sons are an embarrassment. We need something different. You know, one day someone might say something to you or to me that's similar, like, hey, it's time to move on. Thank you for being faithful in this position. Uh, but you've done your part. But hopefully in our case, hopefully we have a better succession plan than Samuel did. So the elders say, notice, appoint for us a king to judge us. Now, way back in 1 Samuel chapter 2, Hannah's song is kind of a prophetic song. And in that song, at the end of it, she sang about a king that God would provide, that God would bless. And so as readers, we're kind of expecting God to initiate the introduction of this king. Here's the king. A king is anticipated also in other Old Testament texts. So in Genesis and Numbers and Deuteronomy, you see these prophecies about a king that's going to come and rule God's people. So all of Israel kind of knew that. And so at some point they were thinking, hey, God's going to provide a king. So at first glance, this isn't all so bad, right? Samuel's sons are no good. Samuel's going to tank soon. Let's get that king that God promised. Now, why wouldn't this be a good idea? I want you to notice Samuel and God's reaction starting in verse 6. Look at verse 6 with me. When they said, give us a king to judge us, Samuel considered their demand wrong. So he prayed to the Lord. But the Lord told him, listen to the people and everything they say to you. They have not rejected you. They have rejected me as their king. They are doing the same thing to you that they have done to me. This is not a new story. Since the day I brought them out of Egypt until this day, abandoning me and worshiping other gods. So God and Samuel are not happy, but why are they not happy? Well, look at that little phrase that gives us a clear picture of what is going on in the elders' hearts. A point for us, a king like all the nations. Do you see that? That's the key. They don't say, hey, give us a king like, like you've promised God. What they want is to adopt the ways of pagan nations. And friends, we got to feel the weight of this, okay? Notice God says, they've, they haven't just rejected you, Samuel. They've rejected me. You see, friends, God was their faithful warrior king. He fought for them. He saved them. He ruled them through his prophet, Judge Samuel. And now he's saying, you've rejected me as king. I want you to catch this. They wanted a substitute king for God. Instead of crying out to God for help in this new crisis, they put forth a substitute. They were trusting in some mechanical provision for their security. Same thing happened back in chapter 4. Then it was the ark. Here it's monarchy. But it's the same kind of thing. It's idolatry, isn't it? And friends, lest we think this is just Israel in the past, we too have a tendency to assess our problems more mechanically than spiritually. Something goes wrong in our lives, and what do we do? We assume we've got the wrong technique. The need is for adjustment. But, I mean, it can't be repentance or worship or crying out to God for help. It's the system that needs some tinkering. So we look for guidance in self-help books or life coaches or productivity gimmicks or, you know, worldly mantras something immediate and that will kind of quickly satisfy us. Instead, we ought to be looking to God, right? What if God is who we need in these moments of crisis and, and difficulty? What if repentance, what if worship is what is called for? You see, what Israel wanted with this request wasn't just a king like God promised. What they wanted was to opt out of the covenant relationship they had with God and to instead adopt a pagan model for being a nation. This was serious business. They were trying to break up with God. 
Listen to what God said about Israel when they first became a nation. So listen to how God thinks about his people and how he made them his people. This is early on. These descriptions are from Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, and even later in 1 Samuel. You, Israel, will be the Lord's treasured possession among all the pagan nations, a kingdom of priests and a holy nation, a set-apart nation, separate from the other peoples, a great nation in praise and in fame and in honor, high above all the nation. So this was God's intention. They were called to be a holy nation, not just morally pure, but set apart for God. They were called to be a light to the nations. They had a sort of missionary identity to be like God so they could, so they could reveal God to the nations. But here, chapter 8, after all God has done for them, the people want to be a, want a king just like the nations. They're done wanting to be Israel. It's pretty stark, isn't it? Instead of the other nations learning about God from Israel, they're learning about worldliness from the other nations. That's backwards, right? They're thinking, hey, all we need is a king. Then we'll fit in. We'll belong. We'll at last kind of get caught up to speed. And so here's a people that's tired of being God's people. Israel is tired, weary of being God's people people. You ever feel like that? You ever feel like like you're tired of being a Christian? You're tired of being a member of a church? You're tired of helping out in a particular ministry? You ever grow tired of being a Christian? It's not always easy to be a Christian, even in first world America. Pressure is certainly kind of ramping up for us, right? But friends, isn't the church called to the same sort of covenantal missionary identity as Israel? I want you to listen to Peter's words here. This is 1 Peter chapter 2, and he's talking about the church. He's talking about you and me. He says, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Friends, hear me now. We are the inheritors of Israel's status as God's special people. Jesus is, is the true Israel and, and because we're united to him in faith, we have become the true Israel. So we, we're God's special people. We're God's chosen people. We have this missionary identity. But good golly, how often we are tempted to cast off this covenant relationship to be just like the nations. That's our temptation, isn't it? How might we ask for a king like the nations? Well, sometimes we want to sit under authorities, not God, maybe other human authorities or ourselves, you know, authorities who make us feel comfortable and affirm our thinking and affirm our desires. And yet God's word challenges us and makes us feel uncomfortable sometimes. And, and it's inconvenient because it interrupts our lives sometimes. And we don't like that sort of authority. So, hey, let's get another king, right? Or maybe we don't ask for a king like the nations. Maybe we ask for a moral code like the nations. Maybe we ask for a sexual ethic like the nations. Maybe we ask for a worldview like the nations. Maybe we want a church just like some other worldly churches. It's going to be popular and growing and so forth. I mean, friends, who wants to stand out in the middle of a crooked and perverse generation? Why faithfulness in our marriages or chastity before it? Why should we dedicate ourselves to worship, genuine worship, over glib entertainment 
Why should we hold the biblical understanding of two biological genders? Why reject our culture's obsession with feelings over truth? Why should we hold to a biblical sexual ethic? Why should we oppose the Pride Month agenda while loving those who may embrace it? Why should we reject the world's idea of being an ally while choosing to be the kind of ally that lovingly proclaims Christ? Friends, why choose to be crystal clear on who are the sheep and who are the goats, just like Jesus was, all the while praying fervently for more of those goats to become sheep? Why should we draw any sort of line, any sort of line, moral, theological, relational, when any line communicates to this world we live in a form of bigotry and hatred? Why draw these lines? Let me give you the answer to this. Hear me, because, because we are, by God's grace and pleasure, his chosen people. We are meant to be different. It is the reason he saved us, to be different, to be holy, but also for the sake of the mission, right? For how will the world recognize a holy and pure and distinct God if we, the church, are not holy and pure and distinct, and when we're not, we're humbly repenting? We lose our witness when we lose our distinction. Oh, that we would be more like Israel of chapter 7. Remember them? Humble and repenting and returning to the Lord and worshiping him alone. We need to be like them more than what we see here in chapter 8. Let me be clear here. There's a real danger in being hatefully disparaging towards those who are outside the church, right? There's an equal and real danger in cultural accommodation within the church. I'm concerned for both. This chapter pushes us, obviously, to consider the latter. Now, what's so surprising to this whole situation and story is how God responds, right? Look at how God responds in verse 7. But the Lord told him, listen to the people and everything they say to you. Huh? In verse 9, listen to them, but solemnly warn them and tell them about the customary rights of the king who will reign over them. So for some reason, God says, hey, Samuel, obey their voice. Do what they want. I mean, give them this king. Like, why didn't God stop their idolatry? It makes sense for God to do that, right? Well, friends, sometimes God gives us exactly what we want, even when what we want is harmful. That's what we see happening in this story in the next episode in particular. So look at the next point. The next verse is verses 10 through 22. We see a merciful warning and a foolish rejection. I find that verse that we just read, verse 9, fascinating. Listen to them, but solemnly warn them and tell them about the customary rights of the king who will reign over them. God says, hey, do what they want. But Samuel, I want you to warn them about what a king like the nations is going to look like. And that's what we see in verses 10 through, I think it's 18. We see exactly what that warning that Samuel gives uh, Israel, what that looks like. And as you think about this category, we're going to talk about this quite a bit, this category of warning, um, it's not pleasant, right? I mean, it's not a pleasant thing to receive a warning. It feels negative. It's often a hard word, but warnings are so useful and loving and good for us, right? So hold that thought. Well, it was useful and loving and kind towards Israel as well. Notice the writer dedicates a great deal of space, verses 10 through 18, uh, to describe describing Samuel's warning. So uh, I think the writer of Samuel is trying to kind of indicate this is a big deal, who this king is and what he's going to do. And so as we read Samuel's warnings, one thing becomes clear, and I want you to hear this up front. 
Israel asks for a king who will judge them. But what they get is a king who himself would be a judgment towards them. Okay? Now hold that thought. We're going to see that here in a second. Because look at what, look at what the, the ways of this king are like. Verses 10 through 18. What is the one repeated word? It's repeated six times. It's the word take. You see that? Six times. This king is going to take from you, Israel. The thing is, the, the, the king is going to take all of Israel's fruit, so the fruit of their bodies and their fields and their vineyards. The king is going to take the best young men and, and, and kind of build up his military might. The king is going to take the artisans from their peaceful pursuits and put them out in the fields to work and plow. The king is going to take their money. He's going to tax them. So, so this guy is going to be just like Samuel's sons. He's going to be a taker and not a giver. And by the time Samuel finishes his little speech, it's really clear. This isn't about the judgments of the king that he would pronounce over Israel. This is about the judgment the king would be to Israel. He would be an instrument of God's judgment upon them because they rejected him as king. Remember back in chapter uh, 7, so last week's message, Samuel was in charge. Everything was going well. Uh, God heard their cry for help. Well, according to Samuel here in this warning, things would be really different under this king that they now want. Look at verse 18. Samuel kind of concludes his speech, and he says, when the king you've chosen for yourselves, oh, excuse me, when the, when the day has come, you will cry out because of the king you've chosen for yourselves, but the Lord won't answer you on that day. That's really strong stuff, right? I mean, this, this warning could not have been any stronger. Uh, Samuel's basically like, if you are going to get this request, Israel, it's going to lead you into disaster. But unfortunately, the warning fell on deaf ears. Look at verse 19 and 20. The people re refused to listen to Samuel. No, they said, we must have a king over us. Then we'll be like all the other nations. Our king will judge us, go out before us, and fight our battles. And, and notice in verse 20, they make their intentions clear. It's not just that they want a king like the nations. They want to be like the nations. Do you see that? And notice as they're describing what this king's going to do, he's going to judge us and go up before us and fight our battles. Isn't that what God has been doing for them for the last few chapters? It's like a slap in God's face, isn't it? So friends, this story is unique in, in that it provides for us a vivid and powerful picture of humanity. From the opening scene of the garden and onwards, humanity has always rejected their divine king. And it kind of proves our depravity and insanity, right? We would rather have a king who takes than a king who gives. We see this repeated through not only human history, but biblical history. And this sort of thing is foreshadowed in the cry from the Jewish people when Pilate at Jesus's trial asked the Jewish people, shall I crucify your king? Do you remember what they said? They said, we have no king but Caesar. You hear that? This is coming from the Jewish nation in the first century. Yeah, we want a king, not like the nations, but now from the nations. Forget about God. Our depravity has always been a slippery slope, always been a downward spiral. It's exponential in its aim. And this typifies humanity. We reject God even though that means choosing tyranny. We believe that we will be more free without God. But we end up enslaved more, don't we? we ensla we're enslaved to idols and, and the kings of this world and 
other worldviews that are harmful and ethical standards that are subpar. And, and, and all of this, this whole system of existence is one that takes from you and doesn't give life to you. Now look at how our story ends in verses 21 and 22. Samuel listened to all the people's words and then repeated them to the Lord. Listen to them, the Lord told Samuel. Appoint a king for them. Here it is again. Then Samuel told the men of Israel, each of you go back to your city. Second time, God says, listen to them. Do what they say. Give them a king. And again, we wonder again, what is God doing? Like, why is he putting up with their idolatry? Well, let me try to quickly offer three things God is doing in this story. Okay, three things God is doing in the story. So you can flip over to the back part of your note sheet, and maybe you can take notes there. Three things. Here's the first thing. God is warning his people out of love. He's warning his people, the nation of Israel, out of love. So let's get a little meta. Okay, we're going to take, take a step back, talk about the nature of, the, of a warning. The last point that I just kind of walked through uh, from the first nine verses was essentially one giant warning to faith church and to me, okay? And maybe it didn't feel good. I mean, you didn't come here to receive a warning. You came here to get some inspiration for your week. I get it, kind of, right? But, but if, you're, if you're honest and, and if you're in Christ, if you're a true Christian, you came here actually to hear God's word, whatever that might be. And so for faith church, it's whatever the next passage of scripture is in the book that we're studying. And today in God's kind providence, we are to receive a clear but hopeful warning. Israel needed it here hundreds of years ago, and we certainly need it too. I can think of maybe six times in my Christian life, in my adult life, where I've received a stern warning. Godwin, like, don't go down that path. If you keep going down this path, it's going to be really bad for you. Do you see what's down the path? Don't keep going. Stop what you're doing. Start going in a different direction. Can you think of warnings in your life that have been so important to you? Listen, friends, warnings are part of how God grows his people. They are holy interruptions with an aim to redirect. Warnings hold out the promise of judgment for those who don't heed them. And we see them in the Old Testament, like in this passage. We also see them all over the place in the New Testament. God uses warnings to stop our backsliding and get us back on the straight and narrow. So friends, when you welcome and when you heed God's warnings, that's a sign that you really are part of God's people. Remember Hebrews chapter 12, right? God disciplines his sons, those whom he loves. So let me ask you this question. Who has God placed in your life to warn you? Who are your Samuels? I totally get it. It's not pleasant, believe me. <laughs> Often after you receive a spiritual warning, you're, you're kind of pressed to fear God in a new way, and you're, you're pressed to feel maybe a, a weight of conviction and the weight of God's glory in a new way, and maybe there's some, some healthy guilt and shame that's going to push you towards repentance. So it's, it's all very unpleasant, right? But friends, I want you to hear me now. It's all so very good for you. It's all part of the process of sanctification, making you look more and more like Jesus. So who plays that role in your life? Do you have family? Do you have friends, elders, pastors who, who you are open to receiving a warning from? If you don't, 
Maybe it's a sign that you've pushed God's care away and, and also pushed his rule over your life away. And you're trying to avoid all these different warnings that are coming in for your good. And you're not just pushing that friend or elder or pastor away. You're pushing God away. You know, the New Testament is full of commandments. Exhort one another. Admonish one another. Speak the truth in love to one another. And my question to you is, who is doing this in your life? And, and maybe you're thinking like, okay, um, it, it is possible. I, like, I could be in a really good place, and so there's no warnings coming in. So that's possible. You're doing really well. Praise the Lord. Praise grace, right? But it could also be that you're just really defensive and not receptive and unwelcoming to any sort of warning that may come towards you. And so let me just encourage you to discern that in your own heart, and let me encourage you to be open and eager to receive God's warning. It is a aspect of his care for you. Number two, the second thing I see that God is doing in the story, God is giving Israel over to their sinful desires as disciplinary judgment. I'll say it again. God is giving Israel over to their sinful desires as disciplinary judgment. So I think the argument of Romans chapter 1, 18 through 32 is in view here. It's kind of a parallel New Testament corollary. And that's where God says three times, God God says he's going to give up sinful humanity to their desires. Friends, sometimes God will give you over to your desires even when they're ungodly because he wants you to feel the pain of walking away from him. He wants you to recognize that true life doesn't exist further down that path of sin. There's, there's only death there. There's only judgment there. True life exists only under his rule. I can think of so many friends that have walked down a path that was unhealthy for them and, and then God grabbed a hold of them. Maybe it was a pastor or a friend or a family member or a spouse and they heeded the warning by God's grace. Maybe it took some time. Maybe it took a long time, but they heeded the warning and, and it was like a it's like a 90 degree change and they started walking with the Lord in newness of life and, and enjoyed his resurrection life for them. But I can think of just as many other friends who claimed Christ who seemed to be walking with him, that when they came to that crossroads, when, when somebody pleaded with him, sometimes it was me, sometimes it was somebody else, but somebody, maybe a dozen people pleaded with them, don't walk down this path of adultery. Don't walk this path of pornography. Don't walk down this path of gossip because it will lead only to slander. And some of these folks rejected these warnings and they're no longer in a church. And perhaps they're proving themselves to actually be goats and not sheep. And that is so painful for this heart. So, sometimes God may give you what you want, not as a sign of his favor, but as a sign of his disciplinary judgment. Sometimes our desires are out of order. We just have to be honest about that. But God's going to give us over to them because he's trying to train us or he's trying to, in some cases, judge us. So don't assume that just because you are a Christian that you desire the right things. Jeremiah 17 says that the heart is deceitful above all things. Galatians chapter 5, Paul says the flesh continues to wage war against the spirit. And we're also battling the, the prevailing mantra of uh, this present cultural moment, which says, follow your heart. Accept the gospel of you do you, right? 
So we're battling all of these forces from outside, all these forces from within, and we just need to have a healthy skepticism of our desires. So let me just, you, you just need to hear this from one of your pastors. Don't follow your heart. Don't follow your heart. Follow Christ. Not everything you feel, not everything you desire is a good for you. You know, a couple months ago at the NCAA swim meet, a transgendered woman, born a man, won a particular competition. You may have seen it on, you know, in the news, and there's a particular picture which showed her second and third place. And I, I think God looks at this and says, okay, you want to go down the transgender road? Go for it. I will give you over to your desires. Let this be a judgment on you. Let's see where this will lead. And as you look at that pictures with this picture with a towering man in the in the the gold seat and two women in the silver and bronze places, I mean the foolishness and the folly is just so clear, right? It's just so clear. You see, when we lose our sense of objective reality, we lose our sense of recognizable sanity. We've allowed human desires, human feelings to rule the day in our culture, and the judgment is on our heads, isn't it? And it just doesn't make sense. It's not supposed to make sense. The ways of the world aren't supposed to make sense. Now, I don't want you to think that if I interacted with that transgendered woman that I would be cruel or mean. Uh, we are called to treat every human being who's made in the image of God with respect, with love, with kindness. Please hear me say that. But I want you to hear this too. Our gospel proclamation must also include a gentle provocation. We need to pro poke holes in other people's worldviews. Part of our evangelism must be to show the madness of sin, the insanity of sin, the craziness of that path out there that's away from Christ. Not from a place of moral superiority, but from a place of humility and love. Gotta remind ourselves, it's only by grace that we've been saved, right? But it's also only by grace that we have this understanding, the mind of Christ. So we need to own that. So the second thing, the third thing God is doing in our story, and here's where we get to the good news. So you notice the story, much like chapter four, it's just a dark story, and it's just a it just gets worse and worse and worse. And God, instead of interrupting seemingly and saying, hey, you need you know, a, a better king, he, he just lets them do what they want. So it's a really stark picture, much like Romans 1. But here's the third thing I think God's doing in our story. He is establishing the kingly office within Israel from which he will offer salvation. He's establishing the kingly office within Israel. So this is the first time kingly, he's like, okay, let's do this. Here's the kingly office. He's going to establish it and he's going to redeem it. The kingly office would first be filled by Saul, the, the king Israel wanted, much like the nations. He's not a good king. He would, be, uh, he would do what verses 10 through 18 uh, show us. But then things would pick up from there. David, a man after God's own heart, he would become king, and he would serve Israel and give to them and lead them well. And then within his rule and reign, God promised a king who would be in the line of David and, and his rule, his throne, his reign would be forever. But then they would kind of cycle through a number of kings, Israel, right? And some of those kings were okay. A lot of those kings were bad. And, and so at a kind of high level, as, as high level observers, we come to wonder like, where is God's promised king? Where is he? Sure, he might be like David. He might be in the line of David, but he's not David. We know that because he's not perfect and David's dead. And so his reign has ended, right? So where is this promised king? And what is his reign going to be like? 
Well, then we flip into the New Testament and we remember these incredible words from Jesus in Mark's gospel. Listen, for the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. When Pilate asked Jesus at his trial, if he were the king of the Jews, do you remember his answer? He said, my kingdom is not of this world. I am not a king like the nations. I am a king above the nations. My rule is trans-political. My kingdom is forever. And in my rule, within my rule, I will not take from you. I will only give. Friends, Israel got the king they deserved, but we get the king we don't deserve. I want you to see, just for a few minutes, I want you to see and feel the kindness of God in the goodness of Jesus, our king. Because Jesus is a king who doesn't take. He's a king who only gives, right? He's a king who will not plunder us or pull from us or take advantage of us. He will only give to us. He will give us his righteousness for our sin, his holiness for our filthy rags, his honor for our shame, his inheritance for our poverty, his sonship for our orphan status, his strength for our weakness. Friends, who in your life presently can you count on to be a giver and not a taker? Which authority figure right now in your life that, that, that you'd be willing to put yourself under that offers this level of grace and generosity? Let me answer that question for you. No one, not even one, only Jesus, only Jesus, the son of David, the son of man. And if you are in Christ, your king. So friends, beware the desires of your heart. The Lord may just give them to you. I want you to hear that warning, but also remember God's merciful provision of Jesus, the one who's your savior king. Amen. Let's take a moment of silence now to ponder the passage and prepare ourselves for the Lord's Supper.